one. We're just going to start. We're going to jump straight into it. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. We're in verses 1 to 7 this morning. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. And he went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. I don't know if you know, but in 2001, there was a census in Great Britain. And in that census, 400,000 people put down Jedi as their official religion. For those who don't know what Jedi is, the fictional characters, defenders of the Force from the Star Wars movies, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Yoda, Luke Skywalker. Just to put those numbers in perspective, um, that made it the fourth largest reported religion in Great Britain in 2001. There were more followers of Obi-Wan Kenobi and Yoda than there were of Buddha or Judaism in Great Britain. Doesn't that just tell you something about the way we fill in census forms? Now, you might have noticed that New Zealand was supposed to have its own census this year as well, but due to the Christchurch earthquake, it was called off. And after that, I don't think we really gave it a second thought, because for most of us, a census just means having to fill in another form. And we're largely unaware of the huge administrative task that goes in behind the scenes. Not only is it expensive, because you have to pay a lot of people to go and collect the forms and hand them out, it also costs you a lot of time and money to analyze and enter that data. And by the time you've analyzed and entered it all, it's at least a couple of years out of date. Now, we've got to be pretty careful when we just jump back into the first century and try and import our understanding of what a census is and why we would have one. Our government will run a census because it wants to find out where it needs to channel resources. So if the census tells us we have an aging population, we need to put more resources into superannuation, healthcare, and that kind of stuff but not so with the Roman Empire. The main reason Rome would have run a census was so that they could tax people, and not just any people, the people they had conquered. And in doing so, they would further the reach and the glory of the Roman Empire. Starting to sound a little different from our census. So hopefully as we go through this passage and we unpack it, we'll start to see that Luke is presenting us with two different saviors who come to us from two very different stories. And as we unpack these stories, we'll start to see how they actually clash head-on and how these saviors that Luke is presenting us with actually clash head-on. So the passage starts with Luke anchoring Jesus' birth to a specific time in history, a time when the Roman Empire ruled the world in the reign of Augustus when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, I know there are some historical issues with this governorship and the census and all that, and I'm not going to get into that today. You'll be pleased to know. But if you want some resources, I can happily recommend a few after the service. But anyway, the Roman Empire, it covered huge portions of Europe, of Great Britain, of North Africa as well. And by the time of this census, Augustus, who's mentioned in this passage, had been in power for about 25 years. And in that time, he'd brought peace to this entire empire. And we might not think that's too big a deal, but imagine living in a country that's in the grip of war constantly. Some people would have grown up only ever knowing war in the empire. When there's a war on, you can't trust anything because it couldn't be there tomorrow. It 
might just disappear. Your home could become the scene of the next major battle. Your life could be cut short by the next army raid. The uh, next invading army could come in and change all the currencies and make your money worthless. So you can understand that people would have been really overjoyed, joyful, exuberant, when Augustus came in and brought peace. What he had done was nothing short of amazing. No wonder people held him in such high regard. Now we know that when uh, emperors in the Roman Empire died, people declared them to be gods. It's kind of a strange thing to do. But with Augustus, because of what he had done, people were saying, here is a god among us. The emperor is a god. And then emperors after that uh, took a bit of liberty with that and started to sign royal documents as God. Imagine writing a letter to the IRD and saying, I'm not paying you any more taxes. God. <laughs> I think you were nuts. What that boils down to in the, in the Roman Empire is that there was really nobody above Caesar. He was the top of the food chain. He was all-powerful. And this census was just a way for him to reassert his authority over the world, to say to those he'd conquered, he was the one running the show. Didn't matter who you were or where you were, you knew at the word of this one man, the whole world had to move. You knew you were living in Caesar's world under the peace that Caesar had brought. But there's just something deeply ironic about Caesar's peace. Not only had it come at the expense of many, many lives after a long and vicious war, but Caesar had to keep killing people to maintain peace. One writer said of Augustus that he gave peace as long as it was consistent with the interests of the empire and the myth of his own glory. Doesn't seem like a good reason to give peace. Caesar's peace was for those who stayed in line, who didn't cause any trouble for the empire. Step out of line and you could find yourself on the wrong end of a sword, as many did. So that's the one story we've got here. And then we also have the other story that's in the background here. It's Israel's story, the nation of Israel. Mary and Joseph were Israelites. Joseph was descended from the house and line of David. And Jesus was born an Israelite under the law. At this point of the story, Israel are under Roman occupation. They're a conquered people. Now, a few hundred years before this, they were also a conquered people, but living in exile. And after some time, their captors allowed them to return back to Israel to the promised land, to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And many Israelites started to see this as the fulfillment of prophecy. God's making good on His promises. But after some time in the land and after the temple was rebuilt, things just weren't quite right. You know, when Solomon built the first temple, God's presence descended on it like a cloud, similar to Mount Sinai. But with the second temple that was rebuilt, that just didn't happen. It was like God's presence was very far away. And it wasn't long after they had settled in this land that they were again conquered by other nations. The census for Israel was then a concrete reminder that God's promises were still a long way off. Yet in and amongst all this might and power of Caesar that we can see in this passage, we see God at work fulfilling His plans and purposes. You may have noticed that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, not Nazareth as he would have been. And all that is down to the census. You might ask, why is that significant? Well, if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Micah 5, verse 2. Micah is a prophet in the Old Testament. I'll read out verse 2 anyway. 
It says, but you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel. Isn't that interesting? Jesus is born in Israel and the, the Messiah, the one who's going to set Israel free, is born in Israel, is born in Bethlehem as well, sorry. And that's what Luke is trying to show us. It's fairly obvious we know that Jesus is the Messiah and he's got the right credentials. But have a look at verse 4 and 5 in that passage of Micah. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. You know, we know that Jesus is this Messiah that Luke is leading us to, but first century Israelites expected the Messiah to be someone who would get rid of the Romans by force. He'd be a victorious king, liberating Israel from oppression. That's what they expected the Messiah to do. And then hopefully we can start to see that these are two stories that are clashing head on, two saviors that are starting to clash. Rome's gospel on the one hand that Augustus was the savior of the world, he had brought peace to it. And Israel on the other hand claiming that the Messiah who was yet to come is the one who would bring real peace. Well, let's take a look at that. Rome had brought a sense of peace, hadn't they? There was no more war, but it was only peace because they had conquered all their enemies. There was actually no one left to oppose them. It was only peace because nations like Israel were forced to fund it through heavy taxation. It was only peace for those who stayed in line and suited the agenda of Caesar. It was only peace for those who named Caesar as Lord. Those who refused were actually fed to the lions as some sort of sport. And that's not real peace. Real peace doesn't come at the end of a sword. Because as soon as you put down your sword, someone else is going to pick up theirs. And then the whole cycle will just start again. That's why Jesus said those who live by the sword die by the sword. Violence is just going to breed more violence. The best that the kingdoms of the world and governments can do is they can govern using violence as a threat to keep people in line. But violence cannot deal with the sinfulness of the human heart. You can't beat sin out of people. You can't beat a new heart into somebody. You know, in order for real peace to flourish, you need not to subdue sin for a time, but to deal with it at the source. You need to give people a new heart, a clean heart. People need to be set free from sin for real peace to flourish. And then many first century Jews, they would have read passages like Micah 5 with eager expectation of a Messiah, a king who would get rid of the Romans, liberate Israel, and then they would be free to serve God fully in the land. And when Jesus, the rightful king and Messiah, arrives on the scene, what do his own people do? They are the ones who plot against him. They are the ones who question him publicly with the hope of trapping him in his words. They are the ones who drag him before Pilate, demanding his death by crucifixion. If you let Jesus go, you are no friend of Caesar, is what they cried. Isn't that interesting? Rome, Israel pretending to be on the side of Rome. Israel called to be the light of the world, the ones who knew the scriptures, who were entrusted with God's words, the ones who were to show the world what it meant to be truly human in right relationship with God. But at Jesus' trial, they were no better than Rome. Israel desperately wanted God to act in history, to get rid of the Romans, to set them free. But they failed to see that Rome was not the real enemy. It was the sin and the evil that stood behind Rome. 
And that same sin had worked its way right through Israel. At Jesus' trial, they were no better than Rome. As much as they were a part of God's solution for this world, they were also part of the problem. Now, a king who conquered Rome but could not conquer sin would not fix what was wrong with Israel. Both Israel and Rome just happened to be looking for saviors in all the wrong places. And don't we have the answer as Christians that we know that Jesus is the true savior? He's the light of the world. But at this point in the story, he really doesn't look much like a savior, does he? Now, he's a little baby born in the humblest of circumstances to unmarried parents. Doesn't scream out savior of the world to me. His uh, first crib was a feeding trough. Animals ate from his bed. Any animals eat from your kids' beds? Nope. There was no great celebration at his birth. There was no parade, nothing becoming of royalty. And that just doesn't scream out, Savior of the world. What on earth can a little baby do to fix what's wrong with the world? What on earth can a little baby do to bring peace to this world? You know, when we, when we think that way and we ask those questions, we're actually thinking biblically, as ludicrous as it sounds. When Paul was asked by the Corinthians about the wisdom of the cross, he said, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. How can a crucified man on a cross be the power of God? You know, we can't understand how this baby could be the Savior of the world, how this crucified Messiah could be the Savior of the world, unless we hold the cross and the resurrection together. So important we hold both of those together. Because on the cross, all the forces of sin and evil and death, they all converged on Jesus. So much so that Paul can say Jesus became sin. Jesus took on everything that was wrong with this world. The sin and evil that stood behind the corruption of the Roman Empire. The sin that kept Israel from being faithful to God. The same sin that we as human beings are born into that infects our hearts, that keeps us from being fully human When Jesus hung on the cross, God defeated sin, He disarmed it, and made a public spectacle of it. But we can't stop there, because ultimately the cross will lead on to the resurrection. On the third day, Jesus rose again victorious, the first fruits of God's new creation. Jesus had conquered death, the wages of sin, the sting in sin's tail was death, and Jesus had conquered it. The last, final enemy to be conquered was death, and Jesus had beaten it. No matter how powerful Rome or Israel or you and I ever get, there is no escape in death. It's like death would have made fools of Rome and Israel. Even if Israel had settled back in the promised land, death would have come knocking on the door eventually. No matter how many kingdoms Rome conquered, if death was still in the picture, then real peace is just impossible. How many saviors could save Rome and Israel from death? Only one. Only Jesus. And that's why we can look to this helpless little baby and see the Savior of the world. How we can look to this crucified Messiah and see the Lord of the world. Jesus in all His weakness, in all His powerlessness and foolishness, was the Savior of the world. We might think this is just kind of basic Christian doctrine. Of course, this is what makes us Christians. But it's so important we hold fast onto this because our world will constantly sideline and marginalize Jesus in favor of some other Savior. Maybe if you look at the the news, you'll see that in the Middle East and in some African nations, there's a lot of political unrest at the moment. People are taking to the streets. 
There is almost, uh, some countries are on the brink of civil war if they're not there already. And a lot of these countries are run by dictators. And people have had enough. And this is starting to sound an awful lot like the first century of Israel living under Roman occupation. But if you listen to the news, you'll find that the political commentary will push one savior constantly. You'll get it all the time. Democracy. Here's the savior. Here's the solution to our problems. If only these countries could become free and democratic nations, things would be better. If only they could have free and fair elections, things would be peace. What happens when you get rid of one dictator? Everyone goes back to loving each other as they did themselves. No, another dictator comes and fills his place pretty quickly. At the time, he's not called a dictator. He's hailed as a liberator and a hero and a freedom fighter. But pretty soon, it becomes apparent he's no different from the last guy. And what happens when you set this oppressed group of people free? They get on with loving each other and hugging and forgiving everyone. No, they turn around and very quickly oppress somebody else. This happens time and time again in history. Now, I'm not an anarchist. I am a huge fan of democracy. I actually like to vote, as crazy as that sounds. And I think democracy is the best political system we've got. But we can't make the mistake of thinking that democracy will change the heart of man. You know, our longing for freedom, our longing for justice and for this world to be put rights, put to rights, are not meant to point us to democracy, but they're meant to point us to Jesus. Only Jesus is the one who can make this world new. Only Jesus is the one who can put this world to rights. Only Jesus can deal with the sinfulness of the human heart. You know, man's deepest need is not actually freedom through democracy, as awesome as that would be. It's to be freed from sin. It's to be reconciled to God through Jesus and made new by the power of the Spirit. Last time I checked, democracy would not get anyone even close to that. Now, we often turn our leaders and our heroes into saviors as well. I mean, look at the royal wedding. How many times did you hear that Kate Middleton was going to save the royal family? Really? Is she going to deliver them from death? Oh, wow! You know, the wedding was spectacular. I even watched a bit of it, I'll admit to that. The whole world came to a grinding halt as they went around London in this horse-drawn carriage. But make no mistake, Kate Middleton is no savior. She may be married to one of the most powerful men on earth. He may even be the king of England one day. But she can't deliver him or any of the royals from death. She's powerless to change any of their hearts. Ask any marriage counselor. They'll tell you a woman marries a man expecting him not to change. Sorry, expecting him to change and he doesn't. How many wives have been able to change their husbands? I don't see any hands. As fantastic as Kate Middleton is for the royal family, she's the same as you and me. She's a sinner in need of a savior. She's not a savior herself. I get the sense maybe we've settled for too little a savior if we're saying she's going to save the royal family. What about the All Blacks in the last Rugby World Cup? <laughs> Let's not talk about that. It's like we all put our hopes in the, the All Blacks winning the World Cup and it was like they were going to give us hope and glory as a nation. Do you remember some of the adverts they were on? Uh, you know, you could ring up and you could scream into the phone and they'd record that and they'd have thousands of other people doing the same and they'd put it together as one giant roar and, uh, you know, they'd send that off to the All Blacks to make it sound like the whole of New Zealand was cheering for them and, and it was inspiring, I'm sure. 
And I did it, I called in and I screamed into the phone. <laughs> Who wouldn't? You get one chance to scream in life, come on. Um, but do you remember what happened when they didn't win? Do you remember what happened in the news then? Was it then that all those pictures emerged of, of the All Blacks relaxing around the pool? No one would dare put that before, would they? Was it then that people started questioning, you know, how many times are the All Blacks actually practicing? Did they practice hard enough? How many times did they call for Graham Henry's resignation then? And it's like we turned the All Blacks into a savior. Something to give us hope and glory. It just tells me that we don't have a lot of hope in life if that's what we're doing. And we as Christians, we know there's only one person who can give us real and lasting hope. The Bible speaks of Jesus as the first fruits of God's new creation. I take that to mean that what God did for Jesus on Easter Sunday, He will one day do for the whole world. Everyone who names Jesus as Lord will be resurrected to eternal life, given a new body that does not decay, over which death has no hold, over which sin cannot reign. Jesus is the one who stands at the close of history and says, Behold, I make all things new. If you are without hope, then trusting in the royal family or the rugby teams of this world, you will always, always be let down. I hate to say it. As good as these things are, they are not saviors. Trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior will give you hope. It will give you something to hold on to in this life. The hope these other saviors promise cannot even compare with the hope of glory we have in Christ. In this little baby, this helpless little baby in this passage, this is God reaching out to us. This is God coming down to us, making Himself nothing for our sake, for no other reason than He loved us. Even though we were slaves to sin, rebels against God, and dead in our trespasses, as Paul says in Ephesians. Jesus died in our place to give us new life, to give us real freedom, real hope, even when we didn't deserve it at all. And this is what we call amazing grace. This is the way God actually works in the world. God doesn't come to us in the same way that Caesar does. God's not a God who lives far away issuing random silly little laws and things like that and getting other people to do his bidding no god comes to us makes himself nothing for us walks among us as john says the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us what does the book of hebrews say we said we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with us it says that jesus has been made like his brothers and sisters in every way god doesn't come to us in the pomp and might of Caesar. He doesn't come to beat us into submission. He doesn't force himself on us. He doesn't try and beat sin out of our hearts. He comes to us in Jesus, a weak and a vulnerable little baby. And when we look to Jesus, we see that God's power is made perfect in weakness. God's wisdom is made perfect in foolishness. And we think that God's power has got to be made perfect in our strength. And that's when I'm strong and when I'm on top of the world, that's when God can work through me. But it's often when we're at our weakest and our most powerless moments in life, that's when God is most powerfully at work. When we've come to the end of ourselves, when we've exhausted all other saviors, that's when we're in a position to receive God's grace. And it's the cross and the resurrection that expose our weakness and forces us to admit we don't have it all together, that we actually need God's grace. 
And this is the way God works in this world, through grace, through forgiving sin, giving people new hearts, making us new by the power of the Spirit. It doesn't seem like the right way to save the world, to save us. We'd rather go for something stronger, something more powerful. God works through things that seemingly look weak. Forgiving people doesn't seem like something strong people do. Showing people grace when they don't deserve it doesn't seem like something strong people should do. It's foolishness. But in that foolishness is the power of God. You know, we look to saviors who are strong and powerful, but when the Holy Spirit invades our lives and opens our eyes to the wonders of Christ, it's like we're given fresh eyes. We start to realize just how powerless all these other saviors are. I mean, saviors like money, saviors like jobs, like relationships, like rugby teams, or even the royal family. As wonderful as these things are, they are not saviors. They're wonderful gifts from God. They're meant to make our lives more enjoyable. But they're meant to point us to God as the gift giver. They're not meant to take His place as Savior. What about money? Do you get the impression from culture that money is more than just a nice gift? Do you get the impression that money is just the be-all and end-all, make you a better person, change your life, solve all your problems kind of thing? If Jesus is the true Savior of the world, does that change the way we look at money, the way we treat money? Money may give us a nicer lifestyle and more options, but it never changes our heart. You will still be the same person you are right now, whether you are rich or poor. If you have an anger problem on the road when you are driving a 1965 VW Beetle, you will have an anger problem in a 2008 Audi A4. Doesn't change. If you have problems fighting with your wife in a one-bedroom unit, you will fight with your wife in a mansion. You will just have more doors to slam. Money will not make you a better husband or a wife. Money will not make your kids love you more. My wife said to me the other day something so profound. I went to buy her some jewelry and she said, you don't have to buy me anything to tell me you love me. And then he fell over. Oh. Don't have to buy anything to tell me you love me. Oh. You know, money will not save you from death. As rich as you are, the rich, and, the rich person and the poor person have the same fate. Everybody dies. We serve a Savior that has conquered death. Now, we've also got to be careful here because money's not evil. I want to sometimes go the other route and go the other extreme and say, oh, you know, money's so bad and look what it does. Let's just get rid of it all and no one should be rich and everyone should be poor. No, money's a wonderful gift from God. It's a fantastic thing. But sin turns it into a savior and it becomes a taskmaster instead of a gift. It leaves us unsatisfied, trapped in a vicious cycle, always needing more. Raise your hand if you feel like you have enough money today. One. Okay, that's it. One. We'll pray for you later. Okay. There's nothing wrong with being rich and there's nothing wrong with wanting to earn more money. But rich or poor, God intends we find our security, our strength and our joy in Him, not in money. What we look for in money, we actually have available to us in Jesus. Real joy, real hope, real security, a future beyond the grave. If Jesus is the true Savior, 
would it mean then we stop worrying ourselves senseless about money? Hard for me not to feel like a complete hypocrite when I say that though. A few months back, I found myself worrying about retirement. Let me put that in perspective. I'm not even 30. Retirement's at least 40 years away from me. For me to worry about retirement at this stage is just nuts. But isn't that just the power that money can have over us sometimes? Sometimes it can just become the only thing that matters, the only thing we chase. What did Jesus say to his disciples? The pagans chase after these things and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and then these things will be added to you. What about relationships? Do you get the impression from our culture that relationships are more than just a nice gift? Do you get the impression that they are the be-all and end-all? That they are meant to fulfill every single one of our needs and complete us? You know, when we look to relationships in that way, we just end up becoming inwards focused. You know, I know we all have needs in relationships, but relationships cannot meet every one of our needs all the time. Eventually, your husband, your wife, your friend, your brother, your mother, your sister, they will fail you. They will let you down. They will mess up. Or you may just lose those rose-colored glasses you had at the start. At some point, you've got to realize that your relationship won't change you. That's what God will do. Relationships are not meant to be saviors. They're wonderful gifts from God, precious gifts, but they're designed to flow out of a relationship with Him. This is how we know what love is, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent His Son to die for us. So if Jesus is the true and rightful Savior of the world, would it mean we look at relationships differently? Would it mean we start to reach out to people? Would it mean we start to realize relationships are not all about us? It's not all about having our needs met all the time. It's not about looking to a partner to be our savior, to fix what's wrong with us, to complete us. What about in a workplace? Sometimes a workplace can be a very, very clicky place. Especially if you're in a place where people are competitive and there's a, only a limited number of promotions going. And people are very scared to kind of open up to one another just in case somebody uses what they've said to stab them in the back to get that next promotion. If Jesus is the true Savior, would it mean that we reach out to people irrespective? Not because we want to use this as a different route to get another promotion. Not because we want to try and earn brownie points with God but precisely because Jesus has come down to us. Jesus reached out to us, made himself nothing for us, inconvenienced himself for us, even when we didn't deserve it. If Jesus is the true Savior of the world, will that change the way we look at our schools, our workplaces, our sports teams, Marriage, money, what is it going to mean for your situation to see that Jesus is Lord of all of life? I pray that God would give us the grace and the strength to live out our faith in Christ as the only Savior of the world, to help us see where we've settled for less than the real thing. I pray that the Holy Spirit would empower us to carry on each day, living out our faith in Christ. Shall we pray?
Father God, we just thank you for your son, Jesus, that he is the only savior in this world. He is the only one who can defeat death, who can deal with our real problems and enemies, who can deal with our sin. Lord, we thank you that your son died in our place on the cross. We thank you, Lord, that it is solely through grace by faith that we are saved, that we can do nothing to earn it. There is nothing we can do to earn good favor with you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that you love us no matter what, that you are with us and for us. And if you are for us, Lord, who can be against us? We pray that as we go out from this place this week, we would recognize that you are the only Savior for this world and we would put these other things in their rightful place. Not that they're evil, not that they're something to be thrown away, but that we'd learn to see them as gifts from you, Lord. We pray this in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.